0: Welcome to Reporters and the Reported, a podcast from Broadcast CGS, where we talk to key people in the news industry. Today, we're joined by Pat Young, an award-winning journalist and creative leader with over 30 years of industry experience. Pat has worked with the BBC, ITV and Channel 4, as well as founding multiple new media startups. He also has international experience having worked in the US as the president of Travel Channel Media. Here, he helped create shows such as Anthony Bourdain, No Reservations and Man vs. Food. Pat is also known for his insights into equality, inclusion and diversity within the TV industry. I'm Colin Tan and my co-host is Karim Kamara. Hello, hello, nice to be here. Uh, Thank you, Pat, for speaking with us today. You've mentioned previously about the fact that you failed your first BBC interview. My first question is, how much of that do you think that was actually down to your race? I actually think it was probably down to my class more than my race. I'm a working class kid from Stevenage. Grew up on free school meals, single parent family, went to a state school. And when I did the news trainee interview, I remember I got to the interview stage. and I was actually interviewed by Tony Hall, who went on to become Director General. And he asked me, what radio station did I listen to in the morning and and why? And I said, Chiltern FM. Um, Chiltern FM being a local station in Stevenage. And he said, why? And I said, well, because I had regular travel updates. Now, what I know now is the correct answer is the Today programme on Radio 4, Mm. or possibly even the show on Radio 2. Um, But I didn't know that at the time because I didn't listen to Radio 4. It wasn't part of the the radio that I'd grown up with. And I think those are some of these unwritten biases that sit within systems that, um, you know, they, they just probably thought, well, what a really weak answer. But I didn't actually know that Radio 4... Today programme was the correct answer for, for the for the role that I was going for. When you moved to the US, did you feel these same unwritten rules in the industry? It's a bit different when you go in as the boss, but there are still different cultural rules and values. So, for example, I showed them uh, Greece Uncovered, which was a, a show that had gone out on Sky, um, and it was about Basically, Shagaloof, it was about what young British kids, 16, 17, 18, 19, do on their holiday. Uh, And I, I said, look, this is what travel programming means in the UK. And about three days later, I had to go and see somebody in HR who said that there was, it had been reported I'd shown pornography in this team meeting. And I had to explain that. There were a lot of bare-breasted women, because people in Europe do tend to sunbathe topless. And there was a lot of talk about sex, but there was no pornography. And that was me not understanding, you know, the the cultural norms. In America, for example, TV programmes have ratings on them, the same way you put on movies. You know, TVMA, which is for mature adults, if it involves swearing or mentions of sex. There are all these unwritten... Those are formal rules. But within our organisation... Just simple stuff. I would say, I used to smoke, I'd say I'm going out for a fag. I was told that that was, you know, not correct. Um, so I was told formally that these were my potential career derailers. And so I had to dial it in. So how did you find like integrating and like, working with people? Yeah, uh, look, I was the boss. That does make it easier. Mm. But, it, you know, I had to take people on a journey. So if I wanted them to produce more authentic travel program that people might actually want to watch, I had to I couldn't just come in there and show them something that was happened elsewhere. I had to show them how people were actually traveling, I had to get the information, get the data, show them what people were watching on YouTube, why that stuff was sort of working, and then, you know, we didn't get necessarily to every place that I wanted to get to. But you know, I had a job to do, which was to turn the network round. and we did it. So we must have got there. How do you think the industry can encourage more people from working-class backgrounds to apply for roles? Yeah, there's this adage, you've got to see it to be it. The the challenge is, for example, a lot of people wouldn't know my working-class background just by looking at me. Um, So, you know, you have got working... Not the Stacey Dooley type, obviously, you know, working-class. You've got some working-class people in the BBC in fairly high positions, um... But the thing is, you've got to, again, look at the things that sit around it. So, if you're applying to the BBC, at uh, entry level, there's probably 2,000 applicants for every job. So, frankly, it's a bit of a lottery. So, your chances of getting in, you know, aren't really informed at that stage by your class. What Where your class will come in will be your resilience and your ability to keep applying and keep applying. You know, in the commercial sector... Um, A lot of the jobs are very one-day, two-day, three-day, five-day. Who can afford to take a two-day contract in London unless you've got wealthy parents or you've got free accommodation or you've got some other sort of resource behind you? But the costs of moving to London are such that that immediately brings in a sort of class effect. I saw recently that you've left Twitter. Are you pessimistic about where news is heading? I've always been sceptical. I mean, look, I I used to... Let's just be honest. I used to love Twitter. Um, partly because you would just see fragments of things and you could go off and mine them more deeply. Um, but I, I've also sort of... How much can you say in 140 characters? And uh, people realised that and suddenly you could have 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 which actually was going away from the fundamentals of Twitter. It was never meant to to be that. It almost became like a newsman and you got the unthread, you know, the thread function and whatever. So... My, my fear is that a lot of power aggregated in the hands of individuals who have got no form of control. Uh, I think it's quite ironic that Elon Musk says he's all for free speech, but if you want to be verified, you've got to pay £8. Uh, and if you want to promote your tweets, £8. Um, so I, my, my worry is about concentration in the hands of the few. You know, Musk has got Twitter. There's talk that Kanye, God help us, is going to buy parlour. Trump owns Truth Social. Uh, Zuckerberg is the biggest shareholder in Facebook, Instagram. Um, But at least it's publicly traded. Um, But Musk can do what he wants now. It's his personal platform. Do you think now the BBC has more responsibility than ever to remain impartial and balanced? Well, BBC's first job is to be impartial. you know, to be impartial, to be impartial, and to be impartial, that's absolutely the BBC's number one job. You then get the question of how they get themselves in front of people, and I, I do think that, that's a challenge for them. I mean, if I was the BBC, I would be saying, look what iPlayer has done for the reputation of BBC television. BBC television, because of iPlayer, suddenly feels modern and contemporary. So what are we going to do to the news app and how we deliver news that also makes it feel up-to-date, temporary, modern. How how do we personalise news for people who want it personalised? How do we get it in front of them? You know, they are trying to do that. That's why, in this big, ridiculous studio, they do the 10 o'clock news-in. Every night they'll say, and you can find more on the BBC News app. But I actually think the way they'll get people to the app is by having content on it that is compelling. There is a guy who does explainers on the BBC. um, Ross Atkins is his name and um he started off doing like three six-minute versions which were designed to be viral um and now he's doing a 30-minute show which looked like they had one last night about what's really happening with the refugee crisis in in manston he has a way of telling stories using um some of the tropes of social media and a, a, a brevity of writing and a directness of you know of approach that makes it sort of understandable and compelling. So you mentioned there about what the BBC could be doing to, to keep itself relevant, to keep itself in the picture. If you're inside the BBC, the way you win the argument is by making incredible content that people like you and me and others are prepared to stand up and defend and demand. I just have one more thing I'd like to ask. How useful do you, and beneficial do you think it would be to have a uh, Black Britain Part Two? It's funny, uh, we were talking about it the other day. It's very interesting. Channel 4 did their Black to Front Day last year. Uh, a single day where they tried as many programs as possible on and off screen to be as black as possible. There was one show which we piloted that day called Unapologetic, which is really an unapologetic take on, on news and events with um, ZZ Mills and Yinka Bokini. Um, we then did the six-part series and we're just in the middle of doing a six-part series now um but that is different to someone like the bbc doing it i think the challenge now in a more integrated britain is sort of what would you call it and what would its point of difference be but i have no doubt that bringing black journalists together in a group is the best way to sort of impact the whole of the journalistic effort in terms of the range of stories and developing careers the same way that women's hour has done that for women in radio Thank you so much for coming in, Pat. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, we really hope to see more from your production company and where that goes. So thank Thanks. you so much. It's been thank great. You.